That was the only way to stop those people. My country right or wrong. How am I going to survive this tour? Don't you wish all wars were fought this way? Looking back in military history, it's easiest to appreciate a clear-cut idea of who the bad guys were that our good guys were fighting. In the Cold War, the official enemy was communism. But was this really the enemy for everyone? In this podcast, I'm going to invite you to take a look not at the global events of the Cold War, but the personal events that brought millions of young American troops into Korea and Vietnam and changed their lives forever. Welcome to the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. The Rutgers Oral History Archives, ROHA for short, is dedicated to documenting the life stories of people and communities throughout Rutgers University and New Jersey. ROHA makes these oral history interviews available to the public on our digital archive found at oralhistory.rutgers.edu. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts at RU Oral History. My name is Isabella Kolick, Rojas staff member and member of the Rutgers University Class of 2021. This podcast will feature 10 interviews highlighting some of the varied perspectives of those who served in the Korean and Vietnam Wars. These service members fought the Cold War on the ground, meeting the enemy head-on. But as soldiers and others entered the war, who was their true enemy? And how did that differ from the enemy in the dominant anti-communist narrative? This podcast will explore these questions. Please note that this episode contains depictions of war and violence that some may find disturbing. Setting the stage for the global Cold War Officially, the United States government told us what the enemy was. Communism. Facing the rise of communism in the East, the United States entered the Cold War citing the domino theory of the expansion of communism as a world-scale problem and containment as its solution. The Korean War provided an opportunity to test that theory of containment, with war between the USSR and China's supported North Korea and UN-supported South Korea. In 1950, the U.S. joined the war to quash communism and reunite Korea. After the theory of containment led to the enactment of the bitter war in Korea that only saved South Korea from communism, yet another communist enemy was found in a small country, relatively unknown to most Americans, called Vietnam. Moving in on Ho Chi Minh's communist control, which was at odds with Republic of Vietnam President Diem's perceived democratic control, the U.S. under Dwight D. Eisenhower sent military aid, including training, equipment, and troops, to the divided nation of Vietnam in yet another attempt to suppress communism. Enemy number one. Communism. Many soldiers did consider communism their enemy. In choosing to enlist or understanding the reason why they were drafted, many soldiers identified communism as their enemy, preparing themselves for the realities of war by channeling their love for democracy and their disdain for those bad guys keeping democracy from others. Take it from Vincent Kramer, Marine Corps veteran of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. In the Korean War, Kramer worked behind enemy lines in special operations, leading and training Chinese guerrilla forces, even giving them instruction on communism. We were merely carrying out the Truman Doctrine, was to, to stalemate the uh, expansion of communism, which I believed in, even while we were in Vietnam. Uh, it, it was a good doctrine. It was the only way to stop those people. Similarly, Army veteran Richard M. George of the Korean War had taken interest in the difference between communism and democracy in his teens and considered American intervention necessary to contain communism. 
The communists like to split countries. That way, we'd go into a peaceful mode with our friends, and they'd go into military mode, waiting for the day when they could attack. And it was a strategy that worked in North Vietnam, South Vietnam, North Korea, South Korea. So that was a tactic strategy. And so we were very much aware of the fact that this was a dangerous situation. Even among the soldiers who didn't share this political view, many soldiers supported the war simply out of patriotism, their love for democracy fueling their experience in country. One veteran with such an experience was James J. Riley, who served not as a soldier, but a mortician at U.S. Army Mortuary in Saigon. You know, at the time, I, I was like 100% for the government, and I don't care about what other people say, uh, my country right or wrong and all that, and that's just the way I was. Later, we will visit some of his changing opinions on American intervention in the Vietnam War. Enemy number two, enemy soldiers. There was the obvious danger of any man shooting at you in combat, but for some, this enemy vision went deeper. Ronald Stokes served in the army in the Vietnam War. He was in high school during the Cuban Missile Crisis when he gained some of his early insights into the enemy. My attitude was, kill him. I was the kind of guy, I was waiting for them to start dropping bombs. That was my attitude because I just felt, hey, I'm an American. Don't be pushing me around. That was my youthful, uninformed attitude, okay? Earlier, we listened to Vincent Kramer, veteran of the Korean and Vietnam Wars, tell us about his belief in the Truman Doctrine and containment. In 1952, after serving in the Korean War, Kramer was sent to Vietnam as an observer, when the country was still a colony of France. Kramer describes Vietnamese contempt toward their French occupiers and the Americans by extension. He compares this to Japanese control of China during World War II, sympathizing with the Chinese. Number one, they were, uh, people were hostile towards them. The native population was totally hostile towards them and uh, the French. The way, the way the French did it, the, one of the things that you did when you were with Chinese guerrillas was to show them the brutality of the Japanese, which was horrible. In China, it's unbelievable what they did, the Chinese. But you would let your people see that so they could fight harder and recruit better in those areas against that vicious enemy. You've all read of the Rape of Nanking, and, and the, it took place everywhere. Seeing the enemy soldier opposite your men, especially as they commit the worst acts of war, it's natural to consider them your most dangerous enemy. As a tool for survival against the enemy, and as a result of propaganda and mounting racism, they became dehumanized in the minds of many combatants and civilians, turned into a simple target to be focused on. People's views of the war widely changed when they saw the nuances in the lives of their perceived enemy soldiers, complicating the categorization of the good guys and the bad guys. Enemy number three, the environment. The next enemy I'll consider is not solely connected to the war. A common theme among interviews of Vietnam soldiers in particular is the toll the environment took on the soldiers. When the soldiers were in combat, looking over their shoulders, they faced a constant nuisance and threat in the environment, the looming enemy of heat, humidity, malaria, and Agent Orange. Vietnam Army veteran Tom Chalfant can fill us in on the constant sense of discomfort brought on by the environment. Of course, we get off the plane, it's raining. 
I've always described the rain as um, put your arm out in front of you. It rained so hard that you could not see your fingers. Can't see them. But it would only rain for 10 minutes, 15 at max. And then it would stop and you'd see this beautiful rainbow. Of course, it was going to start raining again an hour or two later. Uh, I remember I went, they shuffled this into these barracks, into a tent. I start changing because I'm obviously wet. And one of the uh, NCOs comes up behind me, uh, puts his arm on my neck and says, so, so what you doing? I said, well, I'm changing. He says, yeah. He said, um, sorry to tell you, but it's going to do that rain about another five or six times today. Mm. He says, you, you keep doing this, you're going to run out of clothes before tonight. <laughs> he said, why don't you just keep those wet ones on? for the next six or seven weeks because that's all we have left of the monsoon season. And you know, he was being facetious, but he wasn't all that wrong. (laughs) You just stayed wet and there was no way to dry off. And why would you want to? You're going to get wet again. Um, I don't know how anybody lives in that environment. I started shaking my head and saying, how am I going to survive this tour? Vietnam felt like the wettest, stickiest summer of the lives of soldiers. But consider one of the other worst parts of summer, the mosquitoes. They weren't just a nuisance here, they were deadly, carrying malaria, a threat literally circling in the air. Joseph Papalovsky, army veteran of the Vietnam War, can share his experience with these mosquitoes. In New Jersey, they're the little tiny ones. I hate them, can't stand them. But in Vietnam, they were giants, Mm -hmm. and I got bitten by mosquitoes. And the thing is, they give you lotions to put on yourself, and I think to this day, those lotions attracted the mosquitoes (laughs) to the soldier. And I got bitten, and then in the morning, the thing is, I couldn't eat. So I explained it to the Sarge, and he said, go and get get yourself checked out. I got myself checked out, and at first they said, you have a high fever, unknown origin. Second, you have malaria. Whoa, malaria. As we reflect on the environmental enemy facing soldiers, we can't ignore the issue of the hazardous man-made defoliant, Agent Orange, used by the United States military to clear Vietnamese jungles and make the area easier for soldiers to navigate. Agent Orange would be a continued health concern to those exposed for decades to come. I don't know how far they went out spraying it, but uh, like I said, when I came into the base camp, it was tents. So the ground was cleared. All they had to do was put down tents. So that's where Agent Orange was sprayed. And the base camp was a good size one. Some effects of Agent Orange poisoning are heart disease, Parkinson's disease, skin conditions, and multiple forms of cancer, to name a few. Even for those who didn't fight in the war, Agent Orange can still be an issue as it even impacts offspring, including the children of Vietnamese civilians and the children of exposed veterans. In his interview, Popolovsky shares his concerns about the health of himself and his fellow veterans. Sometimes I feel I've paid the price because, look, I have Agent Orange. Agent Orange caused cancer. And that's why if I got it, I'm thinking, what about the guys around me? They must be going through the same thing. 
like I'm in touch with a guy from the first cab and one day he sent me a message and he's asking me Joe how was your eyesight that's still pretty good I mean uh, I see pretty good I still can drive and then he says well I got Agent Orange so I feature well if that's Agent Orange can cause an eyesight problem well well what's gonna happen to me it's unbelievable how uh, bad it is I don't know people just don't understand how much damage Agent Orange mm -hmm. has caused Moving toward anti-war opinion. We often refer to the Korean War as the Forgotten War, as it was sadly pushed into the back of American memory following little success in Korea. And where there was little focus on the Korean War and its veterans, there were active protests against the Vietnam War, particularly surrounding the huge number of troops deployed to Vietnam between 1964 and 1969 as a result of the unpopular draft. Revelations of the Pentagon Papers added to distrust in the government by revealing suspicious wartime practices. Surely these controversies and protests would affect those veterans. Let us consider where soldiers lost their support for the war. What happened when soldiers found enemy soldiers just to be other people in a bad situation and not an evil adversary? What happens when the war turns on those on the ground fighting it? Or when the government calling the shots is called into question? Here, I'm going to take you through some of those aspects of the Cold War that weakened soldiers' opinions on the conflict and blurred the definition of the enemy. Enemy number four, rethinking the enemy soldier. Even for those soldiers who supported the war on the whole, many still didn't consider the enemy soldier their number one enemy. Many began to feel the human toll of the war on both sides, often made clearer when facing enemy soldiers and civilians. Alan Gordon, Army veteran of the Korean War, can attest to the humanity of the enemy soldiers. Gordon shares his unique perspective as a commander of a POW camp of Korean prisoners. If you treat them right, they'll treat you right. And it was very easy, I think, to treat them right. Funny, I remember once a, a detail was doing something, and some of these prisoners were early teenagers. They were really kids. Uh, some of them were old men. In my enclosure, I had a father and son as prisoners in the same enclosure. Gordon's perspective was likely unique to his position in the POW camp, as these enemy soldiers appeared less threatening when taken out of combat. But he wasn't the only one who considered the humanity of his enemy. Colonel Jack H. Jacobs, Army veteran of the Vietnam War and Medal of Honor recipient, can weigh in on his view of the Vietnamese soldiers. During his service, he served as an advisor to the Army Republic of Vietnam, where he served in a unit of South Vietnamese soldiers. These were people who had to fight all the time. I knew that if I didn't get killed, I was going home. I was either going home in a plastic bag or I was going home alive. But I was going home. These guys weren't. They were home. They were going to continue fighting until it was all over or they were dead or incapacitated or hiding. You look at life differently if you're in that circumstance than you are if you're an American. We brought the United States to Vietnam, USO shows, hot and cold running showers. Now, we didn't have that because I was with the Vietnamese. But if you were an American, you had bunkers, hot and cold showers, people to shine your shoes, pizza. They tried their best, movies, Bob Hope, 
They tried their best to make you feel at home. If you were Vietnamese, you don't have any of that. You looked at life differently if your family is also subjected to the same nonsense as you are. I'm in Vietnam. I get blown to pieces. Well, it's just me. I'd look at it differently if my wife and kids were there, wouldn't I? Well, the Vietnamese had their wives and children there, getting blown to pieces too. Seeing the enemy stripped of their autonomy, their family suffering alongside them, teenagers forced to fight, was for many soldiers enough to lose support for the war effort, or at least redefine who and what the enemy really was. Before we visit our next enemy, we'll take a brief detour to hear the perspective of a female combat nurse who worked on the front lines caring for enemy soldiers as well as American soldiers. Edie Meeks served in the Army Nurse Corps at the 3rd Field Hospital in Saigon and then the 71st Evacuation Hospital at Pleiku in the Central Highlands of Vietnam. I remember thinking to myself, now wait a second, because I was so angry that we had to take care of this guy, and I said, wait a second, first of all, you're a nurse and you have an obligation to take care of this guy just like you would anybody else. So just pull yourself together and get with it. I had to make the decision to do morally what I thought was right. North Vietnamese army soldiers and the guerrillas in the South called Viet Cong were treated in hospitals to stabilize them often just before they were being interrogated. Meeks describes the apprehension faced by nurses when they had to treat enemy soldiers. Usually they were, what we would get in the intensive care unit was officers because they wanted to interrogate them. Like soldiers, combat nurses like Meeks also faced the question of who was their enemy, down to learning who was secretly serving the enemy. I remember that when I first got there, one of the first things they told you was, don't kick any of the cans that are, because they could have explosives in them. And that Saigon was also a war zone. You didn't know who your friends were and who they weren't. I came in one morning and a ward clerk wasn't there. And I said, where is he? Well, he was killed last night. What happened? Well, it turned out he was VC. So you never knew. You didn't know at all who your friends were and who they weren't. In the years after her service, Meeks pushed for the recognition of women's service members, in particular through her work with the Vietnam Women's Memorial Foundation. All too often, women are excluded from histories of service, as outdated ideas of women downplay their work despite their mentally and physically demanding work done in war, like the dirty work of healthcare that required women to come face-to-face with the horrors of gruesome injuries, illness, and death, all to care for American soldiers and a select few enemy soldiers. More oral histories featuring service women can be found on the ROHA website under Special Topics in Military History. It's clear that questions of who the enemy really was and how to treat them pervaded all aspects of military life during the Cold War, irrespective of occupation, location, or even gender. Enemy number five, war itself. The horrors of war were enough to turn some soldiers completely away from the war effort. When the political enemy of the Cold War didn't impact them, When soldiers saw how they, their fellow soldiers, and even their enemies suffered, many became discouraged. Even some of those who supported war as a necessary institution felt that this war was not one worth fighting. Perhaps most important was the toll of the war on both sides, felt in the staggering casualties among troops and civilians in Korea and Vietnam. Entire generations were lost, and military and civilian survivors were left with lifelong ramifications. Let's hear Alan Gordon weigh in again on this toll in the Korean War. 
But, you know, when you look at the numbers, U.S. casualties, 8,000 Americans missing, 2 million Koreans died. Mm -hmm. For what? So, as I say, by the time I got home, I was <laughs> ready to be a civilian. Earlier in the podcast, we listened to James J. Riley, Vietnam War mortician, express his opinion as a young man. Quote, my country right or wrong. In the future, he would express discontent with anti-war groups while understanding the issues apparent in the Vietnam War. Before he developed these opinions, he and his fellow soldiers appeared to lose faith in the war effort, brought on by questions of the ethics of war. And there was very little talk that I remember about, you know, this, this is right, this isn't right. It wasn't looked at that way. It was there. You were there for a year. You had a job to do, and you were going to do it and go home. I don't recall a lot of discussion about whether it was right or wrong. I guess we had to think it was right in some way, you know. And I did. I, I mean, I believed in my uh, my country. I believed in my leaders and my president. And if that's what they wanted me to do, that's what I was going to do. But did you still see it as a winnable war then? Or? Doubtful. What were we doing? How were we going to win? You know, and yes. as I said earlier, fighting somebody in their own territory, it's tough. They... Uh, because they can be, you know, some of them are nice to you or whatever, but in their mind, they're, I'm sure they're thinking, you know, what are you guys doing here? This is our country. I briefly discussed that the U.S. was on a kind of Big Brother mission, following the Truman Doctrine, swooping in to rescue an entire area from communism. As Riley just shared with us, many of the people in Vietnam didn't feel they needed American help. So why go through the trouble? Why suffer the casualties? Dr. Charles Little asked himself a similar question. He was drafted into the army and served in the Vietnam War and shared that although he could support the institution of war, he lacked support for the Vietnam War. After returning to the United States following his service, he seriously questioned the legitimacy of the war. He attended the October 1969 moratorium against the Vietnam War, where he could be found wearing a button stating, Vietnam veteran against the war, ask me. And then the commercial would come out and say, don't you wish all wars were fought this way? I thought that was so poignant to see that. War is a waste of time, and I'm not against it. I'm not against it. I'm not against war, but uh, the, the Vietnam War was a waste of everybody's time, and I fortunately knew about that before I left Rutgers. Enemy number six, the government. At the top of the podcast, we started identifying the enemy in the Cold War by looking at the U.S. government's enemy, the political reason for entering the war. Some felt that the enemy was the U.S. government itself and its political motivations for entering Korea and Vietnam. We heard Ronald Stokes, Vietnam Army veteran, share what he called his youthful, uninformed opinion that he was ready for the bombs and the killing, saying, I'm an American, don't be pushing me around. Considering the flip side of his opinions on the war, he too looks at the role politicians often played. I can't say that I was politically aware and based on the political awareness, took a stance. I was aware of the fact that we were there, that some of it may not have been on a good basis. I was leery somewhat about going because I don't think our politicians do a good job in who they vet around the world and who they involve us with. The people they tend to involve us with end up being bad guys. Joseph Popolovsky, Vietnam Army veteran, explained earlier the brutal conditions of the environment in Vietnam. Here, he'll share his ideas on whether the war was worth fighting at all. I uh, read the history of Vietnam, and uh, to me, anybody that reads history or 
uh, knows history or as a history buff knows Vietnam should not have happened if we had the right politicians. In researching this topic, I encountered testimonies from veterans that ran the gamut of Cold War opinion. So many came into the war as young men who had already spent their early lives being filled in on the threat of communism, internalizing the Red Scare and feeling the fear of communism in their own homes, classrooms, on their televisions, and through the airwaves. Entering the war, however, so many veterans shared that they couldn't have even pointed Vietnam out on a map, let alone tell you if they were communist or if they cared. That said, a huge number of veterans did come in seeing communism as the bad guy to kill, and felt that their time in the military did prepare them well for the years ahead. Many supported the war itself, stemming from patriotism and beliefs in democracy. As Colonel Jack Jacobs can attest, all veterans' lives were changed completely by their service, for better or for worse. You're changed forever. You probably know this yourself, talking to all these men from the Korean War, Vietnam War, World War II, and so on. For some people, if not most, going off to war is the defining event of their lives. If for no other reason, then there's nothing else in life that can possibly compare to it. It's not like getting a better job. Well, I was working for GE, and then I got a much better job and went to work for Bankers Trust. It doesn't matter that it was a completely different job, doing something totally different, responsible for many more people and getting paid a million dollars a year. No matter what you do, it cannot compare with going off and fighting for the defense of the Republic. What's clear is that the well-defined enemies of the government in the Cold War were not the same as the enemies of those actually fighting the war on the ground. These enemies, like the environment, enemy soldiers, the Cold War itself, and the government, were only loosely bound by the dominant narrative of the anti-communist war. The enemy was personal. I am Isabella Kolick, and thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. The ROHA website can be found at oralhistory.rutgers.edu. Interviews featured in this podcast can be found in the alphabetical index under the Interviews tab. This podcast featured the oral histories of Tom Chalfont, Richard George, Alan Gordon, Rutgers College Class of 1950, Jack Jacobs, Rutgers College Class of 1966, Vincent Kramer, Rutgers College Class of 1941 and Rutgers Alumni Association Executive Secretary, Charles Little, Rutgers College Class of 1967, Edie Meeks, Joseph Popolowski, James Riley, Rutgers College Class of 1967, and Ronald Stokes, Rutgers Newark Class of 1983. This podcast was written and produced by Isabella Kolick. Fact-checking was done by Kate Rizzi and Sean Ellingworth. Special thanks to Don Coger for his audio recordings. Ambient audio from zapsplat.com. The Rutgers Oral History Archives is an affiliated center in the Department of History in the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers University. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts at RU Oral History.